Hello and welcome back fellow coffee and book lovers. Today we are going to continue on through chapter one, History of Coffee, A Connoisseur's Companion by Claudia Rodin. The wife of Shah Abbas appointed a mullah to sit every day in the more turbulent establishments of Isfahan in Persia. His job was to entertain all day with points of law, history, and poetry. Seated high in an ornate chair, he would also tell jokes, sing, and recount the romantic and nostalgic stories of famous lovers or the Arabian Nights. Thus, political hotheads were ignored and controversial issues avoided. Coffeehouse storytellers are becoming fashionable again in Iran today, though sometimes it is the ubiquitous television that has taken over the role on the raised chair. Anyone who has been to Italy knows how much the cafe is part of the good life. The people that frequent them are a little different from those that could be seen around the piazza in Carlo Goldoni's play La Bottega di Café in 1750, though at this time coffee houses often also functioned as barbers' shops and gambling houses. Venetian coffee was said to surpass all others, and the Café Florian's was said to be the best in Venice. Perhaps the most celebrated coffee house in the world, Florian was opened by Floriano Francesconi in 1720, by which time all the shops in the Piazza San Marco had already established themselves as coffee houses with chairs spilling out into the center of the square, superseding the lemonade vendors, aquacedra chorios, <laughs> who had previously sold coffee. People from all classes frequented Florian, mostly to hear the latest gossip, and Signor Floriano helped in the exchange, for he long concentrated in himself a knowledge more varied and multifarious than that possessed by any individual before or since. Today, although waitresses no longer fasten flowers in the gentlemen's buttonholes, violins still serenade the ladies. The first person to sell coffee in Paris, an American called Pascal, sent young coffee waiters through the streets with coffee pots and oil heaters shouting, Café, Café, and offering petites noirs. The French Bourgoisi ignored the drink, preferring wines and spirits, and left the Oriental-style coffee houses to the poorer classes. However, when the Café Procope was opened by Francois Procope in 1689, its spacious elegance, its subtle tapestries and large gilt mirrors, the mar marble tables, chandeliers, and paintings made coffee respectable and fashionable. Francois Procope started as a limonadier with a royal license to sell spices, barley water, and lemonade, but he gave pride of place to coffee. Being opposite the Comédie Française, he attracted actors, authors, dramatists, and musicians. Among the many famous hommes de lettres were his patrons were Voltaire, Rousseau, Diderot, and Beaumarchais, and during the days of the Revolution, Marat, Robespierre, and Danton. Today, it is still a marvelous café and restaurant serving fine food at 13 Rue de la Ancienne Comédie. By 1843, Paris had become one large café with 3,000 establishments. The historian Michelet described coffee as 
the great event which created new customs and even modified human temperament. He ascribed to it the spontaneous flow of wit which was characteristic of the time. The French coffee shop ennobled the way of its frequenters by inaugurating a reign of temperance and luring people away from the cabaret. Today, the institution is still one where everything is discussed and where people sharpen their wits in debate. It is especially so at the Mabillon Les Deux Mar Mago and Café de Flore at the Courtier Latin. Here, as at the Veri, Les Trois Provencaux and the Café de Chauche of the Palais Royal, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that right, the cafes have gained in prestige and reputation what they might have lost financially from customers who spent too long over a cup of coffee. Historic cafes are still thriving. The Café de la Paix still attracts people to the Boulevard des Capucines, Café Durand brings them to the Place de la Madeleine, and Voisins and Mapineau are for the fashionable of the Rue Saint-Honor. You should visit Tortoni, Café Rich, Maison Doré, and the Café Anglais in the Boulevard des Italiens. And of course, in Montmartre, there are Café Madrid and the Chat Noir, where painters used to leave canvases in exchange for food and drink. They have appeared in many an Impressionist work and are often used as galleries. One could go on forever naming the cafes that have not changed in three centuries. An old anecdote was told to me of a Viennese coffee house where a man had been occupying a seat for some hours. He got up and asked a neighbor, could you please keep my seat while I nip home for a quick cup of coffee? A tourist in Vienna in the early 18th century wrote about the town, which has been called the Mother of Cafés. The city of Vienna is filled with coffee houses, where the novelists or those who busy themselves with newspapers delight to meet, to read the gazettes and discuss their contents. Some of these houses have a better reputation than others because such Zeitung doctors, or doctors in journalism, gather there to pass most unhesitating judgment on the weightiest events and to surpass all others in their opinions concerning political matters and considerations. All this wins them such respect that many congregate there because of them and to enrich their minds with inventions and foolishness which they immediately run through the city to bring to the ears of the said personalities. After a battering of two wars, Viennese coffee houses still serve delicious coffee with horns, crescents, and donuts to their habitues and their special character, including the bent wood chairs and marble tables, rococo moldings, great mirrors and chandeliers, old prints and posters, has been transported by emigres all over the world. For this reason, at least, we owe a special debt to Franz Georges Kolchitsky, interpreter for the Turkish army in 1683, and patron saint of Viennese coffee lovers. The retreating Turkish armies left behind sacks of green coffee beans when they abandoned the siege of Vienna. Kolchitsky collected the sacks and prepared the beans as the Ottomans had done. He sold the cups of coffee from door to door, and when his wartime bravery was rewarded by the municipality with a house, he turned it into a coffee house. It was to be the model for all the Viennese cafes that became world famous, 
as much for their melange and Schwartz coffee houses and their delicious pastries as for the spirit of a grand epoch. There was a time when the streets of London were so full of coffee houses that people were sure to find one at every corner, guided by the ubiquitous signs of a Turkish coffee pot or the Sultan's head. If a sign did not catch the eye, a person had only to sniff the air for the aroma of roasting coffee. England, in fact, had the first coffee house in Europe. It was opened by a Jew from Turkey, a certain Jacob, who, benefiting from Cromwell's generous policy towards his co-religionists, was allowed to settle in England. He opened a coffee house in 1650 at Oxford, at the Angel in the parish of St. Peter in the East. The first coffee house in London was opened two years later by one Pasqua Rosé, said to be either Armenian or Greek or both, who had come to England as a servant. He helped set up with the help he set up with the help of his master in St. Michael's Alley in Cornhill. Having heard from travelers and merchants to the East about the novelty drink, the English were eager to adopt it. One of the most important upholders of the Turkish renegade, as coffee was sometimes called, was Sir Henry Blunt, Puritan abstainer and so-called father of the English coffee houses. The influence of coffee houses was enormous on the political social, literary, and commercial life of the times. They were the stage for political debate, fringe centers of education, and the origin of certain newspapers. Insurance houses, merchants, merchant banks, and the stock exchange began in coffee houses. Everything, it seems, went on in these establishments. Edward Robinson describes them in his excellent The Early English Coffee House, first published in 1893, New Edition Dolphin Press, 1972. Arriving with Puritan rule, an aid to temperance and antidote to alcoholism, halfway between the open tavern and the club, they were well suited to the social climate of the time. They provided a release from the gloomy strictness, but decency was never outraged, and it was cheaper far than wine. You could, for a penny or two, spend two or three hours, and you would come out more sprightly than when you came in. Their democratic character was much in favor. All classes could meet, and nobody was excluded who laid down his penny at the bar, especially if he was of amiable disposition and a wit. That is, everybody apart from women, for women were firmly excluded. Macaulay describes the mixed company at Wills, earls and stars and garters, clergymen and cassocks, pert templars, sheepish lads from the universities, translators, and index makers in ragged coats. I will leave off here today. In the middle of page 27, please join me next time to continue reading the history of coffee. Thank you.